ladies and gentlemen, we are back. I know you've missed us. It's Tavern Voices time. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is my co-host, partner in crime. And apparently, 11 years ago this week, we were standing inside the West Wing in the White House. It's Tyler Crawley. Yeah, no, Facebook reminded me. Facebook memories. Sometimes, mine are luckily pretty awesome for the most part. Like, it's never like a really, you know, big issue, but... um, I will say that uh, I did see that. So I, I can't believe it's been that long, but it has. I know. And just think that was Obama. Obama had just been inaugurated two months prior. Because <laughs> we had been there the year before and heard uh, Bush speak at CPAC. And then we went to the White House the next year with uh, with Obama's presidency. And we thought the world was going to end, you know. And here we are 11 years later. And, well, do you remember uh, who the keynote was? Of course you do. Rush. Yeah, it was Rush. I mean, that was like one of the reasons I went. Like that was, remember that was his first, uh, what was it? What did he call it? His, his first um, uh, address to the nation or something like that. Um, first time he was, it was broadcast on C-SPAN. And that was, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing. And I know we can go off on a whole rant here about how different CPAC is now. Oh my gosh. Versus then. I mean, like the speakers, remember the speakers that we heard? Like the first day we get there. It was like um, John Bolton and like Paul Ryan and like all these like, you know, conservative kind of establishment Republicans. And it's like now you go out there and it's like <laughs> Charlie Kirk and Diamond and Silk and <laughs> Sebastian Gorka. And I mean, whatever. I mean, they're good speakers and everything, but it's just funny. The difference. No, no it's not okay. <laughs> Do not give them a pass. We have we have fallen into this culture of. Just listening to people's opinions, like it used to be, and and maybe I'm, I'm wrong here. You can correct me, but I thought we used to like make people have credentials and experience, and we listened to those people, and we said, "Oh, let's have people like John Bolton, who had been an ambassador and who had uh, some sort of experience in uh, geopolitical affairs, come and speak, not just someone because they have a lot of Twitter followers." Well, yeah, I mean, and and here's the thing, though. I mean, this is the debate that we always have, right? You know, versus how much does that actually matter? Because there are a lot. I mean, because let's face it, the reason Donald Trump won is the argument that all these people in Washington with their degrees and credentials have made you know horrible mistakes, and we want someone who's just going to go up there who has no credentials, um, has no experience in this industry is going to shake things up. And that's why Donald Trump won. So it makes sense that the conservative movement kind of following suit would then look and approach CPAC in a very similar way and would say, hey, as long as these people are espousing the right points, it doesn't matter if they have a PhD or a high school degree. Um, We're going to put them on stage and, and let them say what they're going to say. But I mean, I do agree with you that I think experience matters, but at the same time, it can also be disqualifying. I mean, if you've been, you know, people talk about Joe Biden, his foreign policy experience, it's like he does. He has a lot of foreign policy experience, but as everyone points out, he's also been wrong on almost every issue that he's had to vote on. Like he's been wrong. Like, I mean, it's like, it's like statistically impossible for him to be as wrong as he has been. And so it's like, yes, he has experience, but if it's experience being wrong all the time, then maybe we shouldn't listen to him when making a decision on foreign policy. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's the way I look at it. But yeah, I mean, I do feel like CPAC for the longest time was much more wonkier where it was more like you'd have these conservative wonks and these policy guys. And now it's kind of like, as we, as everyone always says, it's like own the libs at all costs. You know, like they were booing Mitt Romney at the event, like Mitt Romney got a, 
was booed worse than Bernie Sanders. And that to me is a failure of the conservative movement. I know people say like all these young people voting for Bernie, it's a failure of the education system. I'll tell you right now, if CPAC is booing Mitt Romney to a higher note than Bernie Sanders, then the conservative movement has a problem with it because I don't care how much you hate Mitt Romney, Bernie Sanders should be far more of a villain when it comes to ideology, but that's not what it's about. It's about Mitt Romney voted, um, so did Bernie, but I guess you expect that from Bernie. But Mitt Romney should not be hated more than Bernie Sanders. That's a problem. Yeah, and 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 you're right. I don't want to be misconstrued as as an elitist by any means because of the <laughs> irony of the fact, Republican. The, the, the fact that w- you and I are podcasting is some sort of level of hubris at some level, I mm-hmm. guess, to think that anyone cares what you have to think. But I, at the same time, I like to think that we're trying to drive debate, bring some different perspectives, uh, get people to just think about things in a different way, and then go out and be positive from that, not just rally the lowest common denominator. But then again, I don't know. There's probably 12 people listening. So, I mean, what, you know, Jesus had 12, hey, and that was plenty. Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's, that's about double my radio show. So I, I've always said though, the way I look at it is that there are, there are different kinds of people in this world. You know, there are people who are communicators. There are people who are, you know, PR people. There are people who are the policy people. There are people that are the wonky people. And every once in a while you'll get like someone that is both and it's like amazing. But a lot of times, you know, I've always looked at my job as, yes, I form an opinion and I have an opinion, but a lot of time it's me reading other people and going, wow, this guy had this to say. I, you know, I, one thing I try and do on my radio show and even here on the podcast or any podcast I'm on is always make sure I cite why I think the way that I think. And I'll say, oh, I read this great piece in the New York Times or the National Review or, um, you know, wherever I might have gotten it. Salon.com. Yeah, salon.com, of course. Um, Salon conservatives. And that's where I got my opinion from. And so then someone can go and read it and see if they have the same, you know, sort of opinion I have. And I make conclusions off of that. But I don't, I'm not, I don't consider myself like the po- a policy guy. Like I'm not a guy that's going to like, you know, be, you know, behind the scenes crafting legislation and getting stuff done. If something I like comes out and someone explains it to me and goes, Hey, this is great. I have no problem out there touting it and saying, Hey, this is a good thing. But I've always said like, that's what I see my job as. It's not to be the ideas guy. It's to find good ideas and then get those out there. Um, and so that's where I think that you have sort of a difference there. But when you're talking about speeches and you're talking about CPAC, you know, that's, it's kind of the same thing, but you know, when you're talking about hosting a radio show or giving a, you know, 15 or 20 minute speech at CPAC, a lot of policy people can do that. Uh, and so I think that there is somewhat of a difference there just trying to justify the fact that I have no credentials and a radio show and a podcast. So I think I did an okay job, even though we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if that works. Should we talk about the uh, results from last night, Super Tuesday? Well, did something happen yesterday? Today's Super Wednesday, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I don't know. It's super. What's after Super Tuesday? Like uh, uh, disappointing Wednesday? <laughs> like it's it's underwhelming Wednesday. That's that's what that's what it is. But. I think it's, uh, I, you know, I think it's everybody went home Wednesday. Yeah, that's true. Everyone's taking a nap Wednesday. It's like perfect weather. Like in Wellington, it's like, it's like cloudy and I got a good nap in after the show this morning. But yeah, so last night um, was, you know, not a lot happened in North Carolina other than, of course, Joe Biden smoking his competition, but it was a huge day for Joe Biden. And what's interesting about this and I'd love to get your perspective, Kevin, is a lot of Republicans 
seem to be advocating for Bernie Sanders because they think Bernie Sanders will be easier to beat in a general election. I don't know if that's true, but I do not like that argument even, you know, and you could say I'm biased because I don't like, I don't really like Trump that much either, but I don't want Bernie Sanders close to the White House because we don't know what's going to happen. This coronavirus thing could be a hundred times worse than we think it's going to be. The entire economy could collapse. The global economy collapse. This could be 2008. I mean, I don't think it is, but let's say it is. 2008, it went from John McCain and Barack Obama. You know, obviously Obama was a favorite, but once the economy collapsed and we're talking bailouts and we're talking just absolute just destruction, it was Obama was going and easily won that race. I don't know what's going to happen over the next eight months. Something horrible could happen. And then all of a sudden the Democrat nominee is the heir apparent. And I do not want anybody who believes in socialism to be in a position to capitalize on some type of horrible event. As Rahm Emanuel would say, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And so I know a lot of Trump supporters and Republicans want Bernie to get the nod because they think he's being easier to beat. But that terrifies me because I don't know what's going to happen in eight months. And so I am happy that it looks like Joe Biden is going to win the nomination because even though I don't want him to be president, I'd rather him be president than Bernie. No, I I don't think there was anyone in the top tier. I mean, I don't know. I feel like maybe when we podcasted four years ago, uh, the last time uh, I said something about <laughs> uh, Bloomberg potentially, you know, being being strong. But at the same time, uh, clearly the Democrat base didn't like him and um, telling people what size sodas to drink probably wasn't going to go over well in the Rust Belt. But um yeah, I mean, I don't think that they've they've had a top contender that is that had a broad appeal. I mean, I know a lot of more conservative, moderate, uh, you know, independent thinking younger people really like Tulsi. Uh, they really liked uh, Buttigieg, and you know, they they they're gone. So back to your original point. Yeah, I, I think that Biden's a great option, and I do. I don't know. I'm torn on the on the whole Bernie thing because yes, I think he's definitely more beatable, and I think that you almost have to bring these absurd ideas to the forefront to get finally maybe knocked down. But at the same time, you're right. I mean, it, it could cause the opposite and have more people start to embrace these socialist ideas. I mean, the more mainstream anything becomes, the more people are going to get behind it, right? Yeah. Well, it reminds me of that great, um, that great scene from, uh, that Steven Seagal movie. Oh, which one is it? Fire down below about the, uh, where Steven Seagal goes undercover into the West Virginia town. And there's a scene in the movie where, um, he's, he's, uh, asking to give this, this woman a ride back to her house. And he goes, what's going on over there? And she goes, Oh, that fire, you know, that mountain's been on fire for 15 years. And he says, well, is anyone concerned that the mountain's on fire? And she goes, well, I guess if uh, anything happens long enough, it'll become commonplace. And that's true, right? The more people hear Medicare for all, Medicare for all, Medicare for all, eventually they're like, okay, let's give it a shot. And that's what worries me because it is true. I mean, let's face it. Donald Trump, when he first ran for president, was a shock to the political system. It was shocking the way he talked, the way he talked about opponents, the way he, you know, these, these rallies, I mean, everything, right? And now Fox News doesn't even cover the rallies anymore. Why? Because it, they've become kind of commonplace. 
you know, some people have crit- you know criticized Fox for being too, uh, uh, you know, becoming anti-Trump. But the reality is, is if the ratings are there, they're going to put it on. I mean, that's that's how TV works, right? If the ratings are there, they're going to have the Trump rally on. It's super easy to do. You just put a camera on Trump. So if they can do that versus having to produce an entire show that night, they'd probably rather do that. And they're not because I think it's becoming kind of, oh, yeah, well, we've seen this before and we know it. And Trump does stuff every day. And some people go, wow, this would have happened like eight years ago. This would have been a scandal. So, yes, things can become normal that weren't normal just a few years ago. And Bernie constantly talking about something, constantly talking about socialism can normalize it. And that, once again, is why even though I think Bernie would be easier to beat. And once again, that's, you know, me saying that, and I was completely wrong about 2016. So I actually think that Bernie has something that the other candidates don't. He has this sort of genuine appeal where people go, Hey, that guy is saying what he truly believes. Just like Trump. They said, you know, Trump is genuine. He's not, he doesn't talk like a politician. He talks different because he's real. And Bernie has that. And there are people who are going to vote for Bernie in 2016 that voted for Trump. And it's not guaranteed that they're going to stay with Trump. And so I don't know if Bernie would be easier to beat. I mean, once again, that's the common narrative, but that was the narrative in 2016 that Trump was going to be easy to beat. Hillary Clinton wanted to go up against him. So I don't even want to risk it. And even though I don't want Biden to be president, like I said, Biden's more of sort of like within that normal kind of um, spectrum of sort of like historical norms. Like, yeah, he might push for higher taxes and he might want to get the government more involved in healthcare, expand Obamacare, whatever. And it's like, I'm against that, but that's normal. You know, Bernie wants to nationalize the gas industry. (laughs) It's like, that's insane. And even though I don't think he has the votes for it, maybe he will three years into his presidency. Maybe he'll normalize it. And that's what worries me more than anything else. So how what do we do when you look at obviously his success this time around is from him doing this before. So I think that goes to prove our point is that the more he's out there, the more he's saying this, the more people are coming around to that idea. So what do we do as people who believe in markets and capitalism and free trade? um, You know, what do we do when at the same time? The Republican Party candidates, namely, say, Trump, aren't really espousing conservative ideas. Yeah, because then, I mean, that's I mean, really, doesn't it really come down to Trump's version of big government versus Bernie's well, version yeah. of big government to yeah. an extent? And and so then the, the semantics are lost. Well, I said that kind of jokingly the other day on Twitter. I think I said it's uh, it was Trump was talking about how he was going to bail the farmers out again and you know all this money's coming in from tariffs which basically means trump is charging uh consumers in the united states uh tariffs and you know taxes basically that's a tariff is it's tax it's tax and regulation it's all combined into one but it's not called that it's called a tariff all of a sudden it's awesome um and he's charging people money for that and then he's taking that money and giving it to farmers. I mean, it's wealth redistribution <laughs> by another name, basically. And now the bailout for farmers is bigger than the auto bailout, which Republicans were absolutely outraged about and said, oh, my gosh, this is going to bring us closer to socialism. And so the other day, Trump was saying it's going to be bigger. We might have to give more money to the farmers because, you know, he can't lose their vote. And it should also remind everyone that the bailout is going to like big farms small family farms are still struggling on the on the brink of bankruptcy in some cases they don't have lobbyists to lobby for this bailout that's the, that's why bailouts and going to government 
to get waivers only benefits the super rich because you have to have a lobbyist up there arguing, hey, when you're passing that law, why don't you put a little little cutout for my buddy? And they're like, okay, we'll do that, but you got to pay the lobbyist. Family Farm can't do that. But yeah, so I said it's it's you know your choice of statism. You know, do you want Trump's statism or do you want Bernie's statism? Now, Bernie's is a much higher degree of statism. He wants to nationalize industries. Trump just wants to tax them more with tariffs. But to Trump, in Trump's defense, a lot of Republicans have done this. You know, I mean, Bush tried tariffs. Uh, Reagan tried tariffs. I mean, every president's tried tariffs and they've done this, maybe not to the degree that Trump has. And there have been other programs of re- redistribution, uh, you know, Reagan uh, sort of retailing Social Security and no one wants to touch it because it is the third rail of politics. So I'm not going to say like Trump is so much different than all these other Republican presidents out there. But yeah, it does. It does hurt. I think the argument from Republicans, and it drives me kind of crazy when I hear all these Republicans saying this is a battle between capitalism, free market capitalism and socialism. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like, it's a battle of crony capitalism versus socialism. And I, I like crony capitalism more than socialism, but I like just pure capitalism, which we've never actually had, but I would like at least us to, to strive for that utopia. The problem that we're running into, yeah, is that how do you argue against full-blown statism. And Bernie's argued this to some success where he says, well, why do we bail out companies? Why are we giving uh, companies tax breaks and R&D tax breaks? And we're giving them money. We're giving, we're giving them socialism. Why not to the people? And it's not a bad argument. But one of the biggest problems that Bernie has is that he's wrapped it up in the name socialism. And I think socialist policies can be successful if you don't call them socialism. And that's where Bernie has failed. Because people don't like that term, but if he called right. it something else, it you know it might not be that bad. Well, that, I mean, you you have that to an extent, and that's what drives me crazy when you hear people, so many people just bash capitalism all day long as if what we live in is a capitalist society. It's not. I mean, like you said, cronyism, corporatism, but there's a huge amount of socialism, social welfare programs, public education, public transportation, um, all of it, police and fire. I mean, I think we've made that argument 10 years ago on the radio talking about, you know, how often does, uh, you know, a a police officer have to drive into a, a rich gated neighborhood for for violence right the, the, the all of the social uh, norms and and programs and uh, government entities that we have are pure statism socialism where you're you're redistributing money from the people who don't use the services to the people who do and i mean so yeah we don't live in some sort of capitalist society where things are off the rails yeah no yeah we don't live in a what do they call it like uh you know, libertarian, we don't live in a libertarian utopia or sort of this anarcho capitalism or whatever it is where it's like, you know, it's truly like survival of the fittest. And that's not, there are very few people. The only people that I can find who really love like pure free market capitalism are like billionaires and college students. That's it. Right. Because a college student is still living on their parents and you know, they have that backstop and a billionaire, no matter what happens to the economy, they're fine. But the average person in society, yeah, it sounds great to say like, oh, we all got to, you know, everyone's got to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But it's like terrifying to think that like if you lost your job and you didn't have a reserve fund or something set up that, you know, your whole life would spot out of control and you'd be homeless. And so there is a comfort 
in knowing that, you know, there is Medicaid and that there are subsidies available and that there is money available for the government if you find yourself uh, in a bad situation. And so you're never going to be able to sell you know, the average person on how great capitalism is. And so that's why we're never going to have that. But I do think we should strive to be closer to that than we are to full on statism, which is basically socialism where the state controls the means of production. We definitely don't want to be closer to that. That, that is because, you know, it's really funny because I saw there was a great piece in the wall street journal recently where they were talking about, you know, now all of a sudden we're looking at these pharmaceutical companies, like, please make a vaccine for the coronavirus. And Trump's like, Hey, hey let's, let's get to work on this. And it's like, whoa, 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 you were just, you know, bashing the pharmaceutical companies. You've been bashing them ever since you got elected saying, and listen, I'm not saying they always operate, you know, with, you know, in the, in the, in the best way for everyone, but that is one of the problems, right? Where it's like, everyone gets mad at the pharmaceutical companies for making a profit. And it's like, well, yeah, the reason they're going to make a coronavirus vaccine is because they're going to make a profit on it. <laughs> and so if they don't make a profit, guess what? They're not going to do it. That's why people are so worried about all these antibiotics and, um, you know, non-resistant strands forming and not creating new antibiotics. There's not as much money in it. And so now all of a sudden we're all looking to the private sector and saying, please save us. And that's the benefit because there will be a huge financial windfall for whoever creates the first coronavirus vaccine. They're going to make billions. And so yeah. that's what's great about this system. But it's also great that the government you know, may help with R&D and provide some assistance and will be able to pay for some of those vaccines and get them to communities where they wouldn't be able to afford them. So I like the balance. And I think it's important, but we got to make sure it doesn't become so unbalanced that the state is the one making decisions. You know, you just brought up a good point. Why is why are we the ones looking to develop this right now? Right. I mean, this is a worldwide pandemic and I don't hear the socialized medicine countries being in the forefront of being able to produce this. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying – I know that that would be a great meme to own the libs or whatever, but <laughs> truthfully, why are these other healthcare systems that are vastly better than the American healthcare system, according to everyone who wants Medicare for all uh, and socialized medicine – what, why do we not see England and Canada and, you know, who knows, Cuba coming up with some great vaccines and treatments? You know, isn't China, you know, really on the on the forefront of the production? And, and uh, but no, no, here we are looking to the awful big pharma as they're always bashed to come through in the end. And I want to bring something up and I'll let you address that point. And then this, um, this kind of hit me earlier today since we're talking about the coronavirus and everybody's worried about catching it and the mortality rate, um, worried about, uh, you know, all of the other issues that are, uh, associated with this breakout. And like, don't get me wrong. I think that it is a bad situation, but really shouldn't we be wanting it to spread? Because the whole point is that this is such an obscure virus or a rare virus or however you want to look at it that we don't have any immunity to it. So it's it's deadlier, unlike the the, the average flu that everybody comes in contact with all the time. Like since the cat's out of the bag, shouldn't we all just try to catch it? And then that way <laughs> we don't have this issue in the future. No, no. <laughs> is that not how resistance work? I mean, should well, no, no one ever get exposed to this? No, because I think, um, and I might've been in school for eight years, but I am not a doctor. Um, but I do believe that what you're talking about would be, um, I, maybe it was a, maybe it was a bacteria or something. We might build up a resistance to that, 
Um, because the, the, because I had a doctor on the show recently to talk about it and he pointed out that, you know, the best analogy would be the flu. The flu comes around every year. So clear that we don't build immunity to the flu. So I don't know if we can build an immunity to a virus because, um, because it's weird is that it doesn't mutate. You know, you think about like a lot of other things, people are always concerned about the mutation and it getting, you know, that's why you look at bacterial and it, you know, mutates. And then therefore, you know, the vaccines um, and the antibiotics don't work anymore. And so once again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but the fact that we get the flu every year, it's a different strand. That is true, but no one ever becomes immune to the flu. I mean, I don't know anyone that's ever been immune. It's like every year you got to get the shot, hope it works or avoid it like you can. And so I don't think if people get it, they build an immunity to it. Because like I said, you don't build an immunity to the flu. And that's what people have compared it to. In fact, some have said that this will not just be another flu, that every year we're going to have to worry about the coronavirus. <laughs> I was like, that sucks. Um, but at least that's that's what I've heard. Um, someone said it was the, the analogous to the flu. And like I said, I don't think we build immunities to the flu. Okay, so I'm not okay. sure why. That makes sense. That make that makes sense because to me, I was just thinking like, is this just bad because no one's ever been exposed to it before? Which makes you wonder where did it come from? Because they said we've known about it. So, I you know I, I have a theory that you know they say it's really going after the elderly, and I just wonder if this is some sort of twisted M Night Shyamalan movie <laughs> where the Earth is fighting back against the baby boomers for you know. Uh, putting carpet on hardwood flooring and, uh, you know, and trying to destroy the planet through, uh, through all their private charter jets and everything. Well, you know, it, it's, it reminds me of, there was a, uh, not Twilight Zone, Outer Limits episode. Kirsten Dunst, act- Kirsten Dunst and Joshua Jackson were in this episode. And I think both- I haven't heard either one of those yeah, names in 12 I years. Uh, I, was, I was binge watching some Outer Limits on, on Amazon Prime. It's on there, by the way. And I think it's called like the Song of the Sphere or something. And I think Bo Bridges is actually, I think he plays the dad. Um, so star-studded episode. But in the, in the, in the show, um, this kid on his computer finds this song and he starts listening to it and he like gets addicted. He can't stop listening to it. And then all of a sudden it spreads and it, it's all, it starts and the kids start like changing, like their faces, they start like changing. And all of a sudden they realize that it was sent from another planet. And the reason they sent it, spoiler alert, was because the sun is going to go through like a change and your body needs to mutate to this new form in order to be able to go outside. Otherwise you can't go outside. The sun will kill you. And so that's how they transfer it. And so everyone, you know, who listens to this music changes form and can now be outside. And I wonder if the coronavirus is like that. <laughs> like it's like it only infect like the uh, the Zoomers, right? The Generation Z, and uh, they're going to be. It's going to make them stronger, but like it's going to kill off, you know, the Boomers and everybody else. And so you never know. You never know where these things come from. Maybe it came from outer space. You you do, but I think this also brings up an interesting point that. You know, the news cycle is always so doom and gloom. They would make you think that Republicans are going to destroy the entire planet and global warming and climate change and the lack of socialism and all of these things are going to be the death of the human races. We know overpopulation. You should only have one child. Um, Their plant based meats are going to save us. All of these crazy things that are in a typical news cycle. And then a different flu strand comes out and shuts down the world economy travel. Uh, I mean, so many things that I think it just goes back to show how little in control 
of the world we really are, even though people like to think otherwise. Well, it's the, I think we've talked about it before, the nine, it's called, there was a book and it was called Nine Meals to Anarchy. And basically the point, the purpose of the book and the argument, the theory is that we are essentially as a society, nine meals away from anarchy. So if, you know, you miss one meal, you miss two meals, you miss three meals, all of a sudden unrest begins, you know, food's not available, five, six, seven, eight, by the ninth meal, you know, people are riding in the streets and they're murdering each other and they're, you know, it's like Venezuela, they're eating their pets and everyone's, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how delicate this, all of this is held together. Um, and that's why it's so funny that people like bash globalism. I'm like, do you guys realize how amazing globalism is? Like all these countries with different cultures and different economies and different religions and different everything, ethnicities and just everything. And we all can agree on one thing. And that, of course, is, you know, the benefit of sort of global trade and comparative advantage. And and I mean, it's amazing how all of this works together because, I mean, look, look, look you're right. Look at this coronavirus is doing to supply chains. I mean, it's, it's causing major disruptions. But really, it's no different than like, you know, March Madness, right? When people always say like March Madness causes like a $5 billion drop in productivity for, you know, the first two days of the tournament, people are at work watching instead of, instead of uh, doing work. This is for the same reason. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously. Um, and this is the same thing is that the only reason this is causing a disruption is not because, you know, this is going to lead to the destruction of, of, of our society. It's just because people are going to be homesick for longer. It's just a really bad flu. It's not different than the flu pandemic that I think we had back in the, uh, the seventies, I think. And so it's not any different. It's just, we haven't had one for a while, which once again, I think also touts and shows the importance of globalism and that if globalism, cause you know, Tucker Carlson the other day was going on this rant about how globalism is responsible for all this. If globalism was really the problem, we'd be having more pandemics, not less. And in fact, the, um, exponential growth of globalism has led to less pandemics because look what's happening. We're all communicating. We're all talking about how best to deal with this. And as always, the more brains you have involved, the better. And we all have a common goal. And that's that's the best thing to, uh, and to stop a global pandemic is to have all the countries working together. And so the fact that we all have good communication, to some extent, obviously, China's uh, an interesting case study. But the fact that we all have that, we're all we all have that in common, uh, I think highlights the benefits of doing that. But you're right. Our society is is far more delicately kept together than I think most people realize. Yeah. You know, I think it goes back to and one of the things that has really been making me think more about this is I have slowly uh, been working through Suicide of the West, which we talked about like six months ago. And you started it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I bought it for that. I bought it for my Bahamas trip and I, uh, I read the first, uh, 30 pages and then, and, and it's amazing. <laughs> isn't, isn't the first 30 pages, like it makes you rethink everything. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's that, was it a thousand year leap argument? Like yeah. where it's like what we're doing in our society, this, this, this formation of, you know, free market capitalism is against all of our, natural, innate, visceral reaction to things. Like we're supposed to be tribalistic. We're supposed to be nationalistic. We're supposed to be all these things, but we're not. And how amazing it is that we're not. And we're always, you know, as Reagan said, right? We're always one generation away from, uh, um, you know, the end. And I think it, it, it that, that just highlights how delicate everything is. But you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, uh, so I'm, I think I'm about 85 pages in. So you've got <laughs> something to look forward to, Teller. Um, 
But this book has been, I think this should be assigned reading for like every college freshman or something. I don't know. I mean, this book is so great. So if you haven't had a chance, check it out. Suicide of the West by Jonah Goldberg. But, um, you know, last night I was reading more of it and, and in light of Super Tuesday and these arguments, and we talked a little bit about it earlier, uh, but he talks about all of these, the terminology, left, right, forward, progress, all of these terms people use, but really it's just a continual gravitation towards, um, towards, like you said, tribalism, this social, socialism, the, this patriarchy idea of having a king or some person in control and everyone's their subject. And it's so easy to get pulled into that. And, and when you think about something like the coronavirus going on, this is my whole point, is that we have things so good. We've made so much progress in the last 50 years, 100 years compared to the last 10,000 years. And and people can't see it. It's so short sighted and it drives me oh, crazy. We need to be more I thankful. I think um, I think it was Louis C.K. had a had a, a bit on um, Letterman or something. I was watching at one point. Maybe it was one of the new night show Jimmy Kimmel or something. And uh, he was talking about how people get so uptight and complain when the Wi-Fi on the airplane <laughs> isn't working. And it's like you are in a chair flying through the sky and you're complaining that like how quickly uh, we forget how things used to be and, and how we're, we're ungrateful no matter what luxuries we have in our lives. So I think we all well, that we should was, be a little bit more thankful. That was, yeah. I, think, I can't remember if it was that bit or another one where he talks about how he was on a plane and they're like, hey, everyone, like we're going to try something new on the plane. And, you know, we're going to allow Wi-Fi for the first time. We're going to see how this works. You guys are one of our like, you know, beta tests. And so they, they started and everyone's like using it. And then like a half an hour later, um, they're like, oh, sorry, we're having problems. It's not working. Like we, we thought this might happen. We're going to try and get it back up and running. And so the guy next to him was like, this is bull-. you can, of course, bleep that, Kevin. Um, and he goes, dude, this didn't even exist an hour ago and now you're complaining about yeah. it not working. Like you be, it was amazing how quickly this dude went from uh, a technology that didn't exist to entitled to that technology. It was like 30, it was like 30 minutes. This guy went from, I better have Wi-Fi in the sky. Like it's just, it is amazing how quickly we get used to all these, all these luxuries. Well, I remember reading one time about someone was pointing out how the poor in America, like 98% of the, working poor have a refrigerator and this guy's like oh 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 i guess that means they're really wealthy and i'm like yeah dude like in the world scheme of things yeah it does mean they're pretty wealthy it it just goes to show how pampered we are that we ridicule having a refrigerator as a luxury you know many people in this world do not have a refrigerator and are not able to save food and uh, save money that way a lot of people and the fact that we look at it as not only not a luxury, but like something that how dare you even judge someone's uh, status by having this device that's absolutely amazing um, just goes to show how pampered we are and yeah. how we take things for granted like a refrigerator. Hey, I stood in line last night to uh, to vote. I'm sitting there going, I mean, it was taking forever to get through the line. It was awful. And here I am thinking about all of the many, many things yeah. that we can do in 10 seconds on our phone secure. I can I can send you money, which is probably more important than the security of my vote. But we can do that now in about no. two seconds. And we can't. So the whole time I was just impatient and annoyed. But I had to remind myself that this is an awesome thing that we get to do. 
we don't have a bunch of guys in old uh, uh, Toyota trucks driving around with with guns mounted to the top. So this well, is you, okay. You know what's really amazing to me too is, and this is something that I don't think anyone truly appreciates, is if your debit card gets stolen and someone goes off and spends all the money in your account, your bank like replenishes your money. <laughs> like, I mean, how amazing of a society. I know people hate on banks, but you know, back in the day, if someone came into your house and stole your life savings, guess what? You don't have a life savings anymore. <laughs> like we, you keep your money somewhere. And if someone steals it, the company that's holding it goes, that's, you know, that's too bad. We're going to, even if it's completely your fault, even if you leave your debit card somewhere, even if you leave it in a bar because you got too drunk, and not that I know from experience, and then someone takes that debit card, <laughs> yeah, hypothetical, and then someone takes that debit card and goes on a spending spree, they will replenish your money. Like that is just such an amazing thing. Like that has never existed in humanity before, and that exists why? Because of capitalism. Because one bank started saying, hey, you know what? We're going to replenish. So all the banks have to do it now. And I'm not, this isn't like the government. Do, this isn't like the FDIC insured thing where the bank goes out of business. The bank is replenishing that money. Um, and that's a financial hit to them. And they do it because of capitalism. And they also do it because they want to keep you as a customer. And so, I mean, that to me is just an amazing thing that happens where no other time in human history, if someone stole something from you, it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe you it's can amazing. Get society, yeah. but maybe, but it's now they just boom, boom. It's right back into your account next business day. Just it's, but yet it's every, every Bernie voter would think that you need to go up on wall street <laughs> and throw Molotov cocktails through their windows. I know, so, man. Big banks. Kinda, it's yeah. all about perspective. So we've gone like eight minutes past our normal time. So I'm sure the 12 people has dropped down to about eight now. I know. But uh, I figured just to round things out, uh, we were talking about March Madness a second ago. The season's, you know, churning up. We're almost attorney time. We've got Duke Carolina on Saturday. And I wanted to ask you how you're feeling about your Terps this year because it's been a while since I've seen them put on a, put on a little show like they have this year. Well, uh, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't really watch them that much as I used to. One, it's hard because they're now in the Big Ten. So, you know, when they were ACC, it was easier to get the games on local TV. So I even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to see them as much. But no, I mean, ever since they left the, the ACC, it's hard for me to root for them. And I also I also will say this, um, you know, I grew up as Gary Williams being the coach of the Terps. And when he left... And then it wasn't long after that they left the ACC. So it was like not only did my favorite coach, I think I was a bigger fan of Gary Williams than I was of actually Maryland. And so he leaves and then they leave the ACC. And it was just like, you know, I, I just I don't follow the Terps the way I used to. But I, I, I do catch them every once in a while. And, you know, they are they are doing well. Um, but I just don't know enough to, to talk about it intelligently. So I'm not going to well, pretend. <laughs> you know, if you want to, that other Williams coach will have you. So. <laughs> well, he's going to be gone, too, because, uh, you know, you guys missed the tournament. I think that's automatic firing. Um, just ask uh, Matt Doherty. So. <laughs> <laughs> I said right, it was like three years. Yeah. Well, it was like two years. It was like two months ago. I jokingly said, um, you know, somewhere Matt Doherty smiling because it's like finally Roy Williams had his Matt Doherty season. Like he's been on a roll. I mean, is, is this the first time they're going to miss a tournament since he was coach? I mean, I can't think um, of another time they no, did. No, they they went to the NIT. Um, 
we won the, the big thing in 09. So maybe it was 10 or 11. It was shortly after Did you the, say the uh, big thing? Did you say the big thing? Like, are you Joe Biden? Like, you know, the thing, the thing. We won the, the thing. thing. The thing. The thing, the <laughs> thing we signed. Herbie Hancock signed it. Yeah. Um, man, that was, yeah, that was good. Yeah, the thing, the thing, the, the, thing. Turn, the championship. The we won that thing. You know? we, we win so many of them. I forget what they're called. I don't know. Uh, but no, watch. We're going to be a dark horse. Just, I think the ACC tournament. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to ruin some people's weekends. I was That's like all. a dark horse in like what? Like, I don't think you guys are even going to make the NIT, are you? Oh, no, probably not. Well, I think we're going to win the ACC tournament. Oh, so you think you're going to get, get a tournament? And get a birth. bit that way. Wow. Automatic birth. We'll be a 16 seed um, and we'll we'll make it to uh, to the second round. You heard it here first. Interesting. But wait, so what, what's, your guys, I mean, what's your guys record right now? The ugh. It's like five um, and something, right? Five or six. Oh, the ACC record? Yeah. Yeah, no. I think it – well, we won last night. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's five or six wins. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, was just, I was just wondering because, like, that's why I was wondering, you know, what what you need for an NIT seed. Um, and, you know, North Carolina being North Carolina, even if you guys were like oh and – 16 in the ACC, they'd probably still give you a bid just because it's, it's good yeah. money to have honestly the yeah. UNC in the tournament. But I wouldn't be surprised if they don't. Cause I mean, here's the thing. Yes, it's been a very bad year, but it's also been an injury plagued year, right? It's not like it's a full on like talentless. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming the, there's no talent. I'm, I'm just saying is, is that, you know, it, it's, you got, it, it's a problem, but it clearly just is not a good year. I mean, because you guys have had other in, you know problems with that, and other teams have injuries. And I know that it, you know it can it can match up. But I think it was just a it's just it's just like everything bad that can happen has happened um, with even like the, even the Duke oh, game. You know, I mean, even the Duke game, you guys should have won that. Yeah, we should. <laughs> and have. it was just there was like five ACC games we should have won. Like legitimately, one or two points should have won. Um, the last second shot against what Virginia. I mean, yeah, you got to finish, though. That's what they got to learn. You got to finish. So um, at this point, I have completely lost Tyler's connection. He has dropped out. And I'm just going to keep talking until he comes back. Because basically at this point, it is now the Kevin King show. And until Tyler plugs his dial-up internet back in and activates his modem, I can just do whatever I want to do. And that's probably what I'm going to do at this point. Thank you for listening to Tavern Voices. We'll see you next time. It's a lot of trust back then, yeah. Those were simpler times, I think. I just feel like we may be going back to that, by the way. But uh, in a way, good. Because when I read things like the foundations of capitalism are shattering, I'm like, maybe we need that. Maybe we need some time where we're walking around with a donkey with pots clanging on the sides. You You think that would just bring us back to reality? Yeah, because everything is amazing right now. And nobody's happy. Like, in my lifetime, the changes in the world have been incredible. When I was a kid, we had a rotary phone. We had a phone that you had to stand next to. And you had to dial it. Yes. Do you, you realize how primitive... You're making sparks <laughs> in a phone. And you actually would hate people with zeros in their numbers because it was more... It was right. like, oh, this guy's got two zeros. Screw that guy. Why do I want to... Yeah. <laughs> And then if, you, if they called and you weren't home, the phone would just ring lonely by itself. And then if you wanted money, you had to go in the bank. 
for when yes. it was open for like three hours. You just stay in line, write yourself a check like an idiot. And then when you run out of money, you just go, well, I can't do any more things now. Right. I can't do any more That's things. That's it, yeah. That was it. And even if you had a credit card, they'd, the guy would go, ugh, and he'd bring out this whole shunk, shunk, and he'd write, yes. oh, cruddy, you'd have to call the president to see if you have any money. And it's all true, kids. You code. had to call the president, yeah. It was ridiculous. Yes. Do you feel that we now... In the 21st century, we take technology for granted. Well, yeah, because now we live in an, in an amazing, amazing world, and it's wasted on the on the crappiest generation of just spoiled idiots <laughs> that don't care. Because this is what people are like now. They got their phone, and they're like, ugh, it won't. Give it a second. Give, it's going to space. Can you give it a second to get back from space? Is the speed of light too slow for you? I was, on a, I was on an airplane, and there was internet, high-speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane, and they go, open up your laptop. You can go on the internet. And it's fast, and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's, I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down. And they apologize. The internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, this is bull****. <laughs> like, how quickly the world owes him something. Yes. He knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right. Right. And on planes... Flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane, and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non-contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing. Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh, my God! Wow! Yes! You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's right. Now, now Louie... But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't go back a lot. And it's, and it's not really... You know, here's the thing. People, like, they say there's delays on flights. Delays, yeah. really? New York to California in five hours. That used to take 30 years <laughs> to do that. And a bunch of you would die on the way there and have a baby. You'd be a whole different group of people by the time you got there. <laughs> now you watch a movie and you take a dump in your home. Yeah. Well, nicer way to say it than that, but yeah, it's a... No.